Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. Unwrapping Christmas, that's the title of our Christmas series. How many of you have been encouraged so far with our last couple of messages? Good. Anyone been inspired? Good. Anyone been offended yet? There's always today, by the way. There's always today. As I was studying for this message uh, in early or late October, early November, as I was putting together scriptures and trying to figure out what this week looked like as I studied, I was offended personally with what scripture had to say. And what I realized as I was being offended is I should just skip and not preach this message. That'd be easier. And then I realized it wasn't necessarily that I was being offended, I was being convicted. And I think there's an important distinction in our Christian lives when something pricks at our heart is to recognize the difference between being offended and being convicted. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit, it comes from Scripture, it comes from a heart that is willing to be vulnerable and hear from God in a way that might be uh, uh, a posture of correctness in our life. And so as I went through the scriptures and as I put together this message, I did not have any fun doing so, but I also recognized there were some things in my heart that needed to change about what we're going to talk about. And so I uh, I hope that happens for you. If you do happen to be offended, I hope that you'll take the time to think, am I being offended or is God speaking to me about something specific I need to hear? Am I being convicted? How would you fill out this sentence uh, this morning? Christmas is a season of, shout it out, giving joy, love, peace. All of these different things, if you're following in our notes, I think you'll also agree Christmas is also a season of excess. Isn't that right? Like everything and everyone is just a little bit extra during this time of year. I think you'll agree with me. And it can be difficult to walk against the crowd and the culture who seem to want to do nothing more than eat, drink, and be merry as if there's no consequences to any of those decisions. So this morning, I want to unpack a scripture that may not feel like a Christmas scripture specifically, but I think it's important for us as we unwrap Christmas. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 in verse 19 this morning. Matthew chapter 6 in verse 19, scripture tells us this, don't store up treasures here on earth. Where moth eat them, moths eat them, and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body, and when your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one, and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. 
you cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. So the issue here in scripture is not that earthly treasures are intrinsically bad, but to lay up for yourselves treasures on earth is also to doom yourself to a life of frustration, emptiness. And in contrast, heavenly treasures are everlasting. They're incorruptible. And in fact, you get the enjoyment now in the sense of well-being that comes from being a giver, but ultimate enjoyment comes on the other side of eternity. You've heard this said, you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul, right? Like every time we hear that, it's an enjoyable uh, picture to look at a hearse pulling a U-Haul. And we say that, well, of course, no one would actually do that. Have you ever seen them um, untomb Egyptian pharaohs of old? If you've read any of those articles or ever seen any of them, you'll notice that they were buried with gold and treasure and all sorts of precious items in order to take with them to the afterlife. And you think, man, we would never do that. Well, verse 21 helps us understand the conundrum. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Let's say that verse together. Ready, begin. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Jesus draws this conclusion that you can only have your treasure and your heart in one place. We cannot store up treasures on earth and in heaven at the same time. You can only have your treasure and your heart in one place. He goes to kind of unpack that with an illustration about light. He says this in verse 22, we read it a moment ago. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. In other words, light comes into the body through the eye. But verse 23, but when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the, and if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep is that darkness? He's drawing the conclusion that being generous in our lives brings light to our lives. We are happier, we are more content when we have God's heart of generosity, but when we are not generous, our hearts are full of darkness. Our selfish, miserly ways cast over darkness over everything that we do. So in any case, Jesus tells us that either our, high, our eye is directed at heavenly things and therefore full of light, or we're directed at earthly things and therefore full of darkness. He then put, paints a striking image in verse 24, and he says this, no one can serve two, what's the next word? Masters. By the way, uh, the words no one in the Greek, you know what it means in the Greek? Nobody. There's no difference. No one can serve two masters. And sometimes when we read this verse, we can take the word masters and we can think of them as bosses. And so in our minds, we think, well, no one can serve two bosses. The problem with that analogy is how many of you have ever worked more than one job at a time? Yeah. I did it in college. 
I think I had two or three jobs at one point. And what happens when you have more than one boss? Well, you go to one place and you punch in there. I don't know if people actually still punch in anymore, but I had jobs where you punch in, right? And for that duration of time, you work for that employer, you punch out, you go to your next job, and all of a sudden, you are not beholden to your old boss anymore, right? You have a new boss and you have a new employer, so you punch in there, and for the duration of time that you're there, you have a new employer. Jesus is not speaking about having two jobs. The imagery he's using is not about employment, it's about slavery. It's about slavery. And what he's saying is, you cannot serve two masters as a slave. No slave could serve two masters. So ancient Israel struggled with idolatry. They thought they could worship the Lord God and Baal. And yet to be loyal to the one is to despise the other. And so Jesus states here, you cannot, as a slave, have two masters. Serving two masters is impossible. The idea from Jesus is not that serving two masters is difficult. The idea is not that serving two masters is hard or emotionally taxing or physically draining. He says it's impossible. It doesn't exist. You are serving the one or you're serving the other. So how can we tell who or what we are serving? Well, it really comes down to a question of who do you sacrifice for? The following is a quote from Rick McKendley, and he says this, If you will sacrifice for the sake of money, but will not sacrifice for the sake of Jesus, don't deceive yourself. Money is your God. If we sacrifice for the sake of money... But we won't sacrifice for the sake of Jesus. Don't deceive yourself. Money is your God. It's funny how this kind of thinking can creep into our minds and in our lives and in our hearts without us really knowing it. Because we, we all have moments where we sacrifice for money. We'll go to the extra store to save the extra dollar. We will we'll plan. We'll, we'll, we'll work overtime in order to achieve a certain financial status so we can do this or we can do that. And yet when it comes to serving Jesus or sacrificing for Jesus, what usually ends up happening is unless the opportunity to serve Jesus is simple, easy, and fits already into our schedule, we normally pass on that opportunity. So as your pastor, as we unwrap Christmas, I would like to challenge you to spend less this Christmas. You say, why? Well, because there are temporary treasures and eternal treasures. Because deep, meaningful, healthy relationships are developed and cultivated, they cannot be bought. Because there's a deeper way to celebrate Christmas. Before I go any further, let me say this. As we choose to let go of the cultural flow, let me encourage us by saying spending less on Christmas presents doesn't mean we love our friends and family any less. In fact, we will often find that to those to whom we give creative, personal, thoughtful gifts, 
we will see and sense our love perhaps God's more clearly than ever. So what do I mean when we say spending less? Does it mean spend less than last year on Christmas? Does it mean spend less than others? Does it mean spend less than the average American who spends $1,500 on Christmas presents? Well, there's no simple formula here, and your answers will vary, but God will help you if you seek with an honest and humble heart. But I want, to th- I want us to think about the story we are telling our children in our gift giving. Is it healthy to give them whatever they want? What values does careless spending create? Does it build character? And maybe we're guilty of giving our children too much where the sheer volume can distract them from the celebration of Jesus. So this stands in stark contrast to what we hear this time of year because Christmas is all about getting what we want. But is this the tradition we want to pass down to the next generation? The tradition of spending money we simply don't have. The tradition of creating debt in order to buy a gift. The tradition of running up a credit card in the name of Jesus' birth. See, when we allow Christmas to revolve around possessions, our Advent, our Christmas season, becomes less about preparing for Jesus and more about expectations we're carrying. Our hearts feel dissatisfied in searching for something that cannot be bought in a store. So let me encourage you to consider simply spending less. Instead of mindlessly shopping and spending more than we can afford, let's take the time to think about our purchases. Resist the empire of more. Declare that Jesus is worthy of our praise and really be thoughtful about how we go through this. You say, Daniel, where is this coming from? Well, it's coming from a personal place where I equate... Um, I have equated in the past the amount someone spends with the amount they love, right? And so you might, you might come from that kind of background where you equated however someone spent on you the amount that they loved you, which is a horrible way to go through the Christmas season. Because it constantly puts you in this place where you're keeping score and you're allowing your heart to be manipulated by earthly treasures. Now, don't get me wrong. I like gifts. I like them a lot. Um, Libby and I have been very careful and thoughtful this Christmas. We have tried to be anyway and said, okay, here's our budget. Here's what we're going to spend. This is what it looks like for us to spend Christmas. This is what it looks like for us to spend money on Christmas. I'm not saying we're not spending anything on Christmas, but I do think there is a healthy discussion to be had in order for us to really proclaim the name of Jesus at Christmas rather than the name of ourselves. It's also coming from a place where I've had people in my office in the last six weeks and probably in the next eight to ten weeks just struggling to measure up to the pressures of Christmas and trying to figure out what it looks like for them and their family to enjoy Christmas at the pressures that the culture demands. And being in this horrible place where they feel like they have to measure up in some way. So let me give you some ideas to consider in helping you spending less. Uh, First, let's ask God for humility 
to resist the potential pride in thinking that your way of approaching gift giving is the only way to approach gift giving. But let me give you some practical tips. Uh, Get into the habit of asking a few more questions before you spend your money. Set a budget. Do your best to have a debt-free Christmas. You say, Daniel, it's December 10th. We're way past that. (laughs) And that's okay, because I know that's a reality for a lot of you, maybe. Then I would say this. Let's figure out what it looks like for you to have a debt-free Christmas next Christmas. The values you can implement now will allow you to do that. Consider your core values as a family and whether your gifts reflect those values. Consider giving one less gift than last year. Talk openly and early with your family about what Christmas is about and how you want to change what it looks like to celebrate Christmas if you tend to go over the top. I think you'll be surprised how quickly they begin to understand your new perspective. In your notes there, by conserving some of the resources we spend on material gifts, we can use them to make a lasting impact by giving to someone in need or making memories with those we love. This is more than just an invitation to say no to overspending. This is an invitation to a new way of celebrating Jesus' birth. It's his day after all. So let me walk you through some verses that will help us understand this. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. You guys with me so far? We okay? 1 Timothy chapter 6 says this. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Let's just look at this, word, this verse right here. Uh, people who long to be rich. That word rich, I think we know what it means. It's talking about Money. It's talking about the desire to accumulate money. It can also talk about the accumulation of possessions and things. So if you were to look at this verse, where would you find yourself? People who long to be rich or uh, financially ahead or desirous of, uh, of gifts and things and material possessions, what might be the risk there? Well, they fall into temptation and are trapped can I, can I tell you, the people that have been in my office the last three or four weeks and talked about this, um, this is the feeling that I get when I talk to them. They feel trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. We, we know that as we look at this verse, it doesn't mean that money is the root of all evil, right? It's the love of money. But some people, when they crave money, have wandered from the true faith. What, what, what scripture is imploring us to consider is that our desire to pursue material things and financial gain and money and, and being rich, that our desire to do that, we could fall into temptation, we could be trapped 
to the point where we fall away and wandered from the true faith, where you deny Jesus and his celebration, where you deny what he has done for you on the cross, where you deny when he says that you are enough and that you are loved and you're treasured and valued. And now instead of believing those things from Jesus, we want to be valued, treasured, and worth by the value of things that are given to us or the value of things that we would spend on people. They wandered from the true faith and then pierced themselves with many sorrows. Now these are plagues on people of faith as well as people away from the faith. But there is an inherent danger in the pursuit and accumulation of wealth and things at all costs. Paul writes in Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, our next verse says this. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. Here's Paul. You know where Paul's writing this from? He's writing this from prison. He's writing this while he's in prison, when he's under house arrest. And Paul begs us to consider an alternative outlook when it comes to financial and material things. He says, not that I was ever in need. I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. Here is Paul, and at one point in his life, Paul was among the religious elite. He was looked up by every Jewish person in the area. And then, because he came to Jesus and he shed that exterior religious mask that he was wearing and became a true follower of Jesus and began to pursue Jesus at all things, he began to let go of some of those material possessions. And here he's explaining, I've learned to be content with whatever I have. Uh, Learning to be content can be a hard and difficult thing, but Paul tells us it's possible. Verse 12, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation. Whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. Right in the middle there, he says, I have learned the secret of living in every situation. You say, what is that secret? He just told us it is to learn to be content with whatever I have. What, a, what, what, what change, what impact would this kind of perspective be on our Christmas time? Even though Paul was in need, he was content with where he was at, even in Roman imprisonment. And Paul reminds us that his content was not only theoretical, he actually lived it. Paul had been financially well off before, and now he was in financially in need. So he says these two things, uh, these two verses, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. Verse 12, I know how to live on almost nothing. Or with everything, I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. And then verse 13, he says, for I can do everything through Christ, which gives me strength. Now we have taken this verse and we have, we have co-opted this verse for our own desires, haven't we? We've co-opted this verse to mean, well, I can do anything I set my mind to do. I can do anything that Christ, because Christ strengthens me. And so we'll take this verse and we'll put it on our water bottle. We'll put it on our our, our t-shirts. We'll put it to mean that we can do anything. We are now super Christians. 
And we can do anything asked for in a given day. And yet Paul's original um, circumstances that led him to write verse 13 was being in prison, learning how to be content, and understanding that, yeah, you, you can be grateful in really difficult circumstances. You can learn to do without in really difficult circumstances. The setting for which Philippians 4.13 is about Jesus' presence in our life overcoming the temporary temptations we might have. So if the goal is to celebrate the birth of a king, let's focus less on what we spend and more on giving from a place of true love and true worship. Now, those of you who are worried where next week's message is going to go based on this week, this week is about spending less. Next week is about giving more. You say, how are you going to pull that off, Daniel? Stay tuned. So we're not just talking about reducing everything for just reducing everything's sake, but I'm asking us to consider, is there a different way we can approach the holidays this year and the years going forward if it's really about the birth of a savior? What would it look like to rethink the way we use our wealth? What would it look like to rediscover the beauty of true giving? Whenever I study for a message, I try to look at what uh, people have said before, people I respect and authors and and thinkers. And I found this quote from C.S. Lewis in a book I was reading, and he says this. He basically says the best way to break money's power is to give it away. Look at this quote. C.S. Lewis says this. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. He says this, if our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. What's he saying? Well, the way to break money's power is just to give it away. You see, the New Testament opens the floodgates and pushes us toward boundary-busting generosity, reflecting God's love for us. Our final two verses are in 2 Corinthians 9 this morning, where, Jesus, where God says this. Paul writes this. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources. Let's pause right there. Increase your resources. Everybody say those words together with me. Ready? Begin. Increase your resources. How many of you would love for your resources to increase? I like that. I'm down. Increase our resources. Uh, More time, right? Like just one hour a day. I would just sleep, I'll be honest with you. I go to bed early. I just go to bed an hour earlier. But what if we had more time? What if we had more energy? What if we had more resources? So Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's saying, hey, man, it's, it's, it's really God who gets to provide this. And he will provide and increase your resources. Don't you wish there was a period right there at the end of that sentence? That would have been awesome. He will provide and increase our resources. Amen. Let's go. Let's go to lunch. Why? And then produce a great harvest. Oh, this gets even better. More resources and a bigger harvest? Yes, this is what I want. Why? Well, wait, 
There's a harvest of what? Oh, my. Linda, would you go to the next slide, please? Yes, Paul says. You will be enriched in every way so that you can always have exactly what you want for Christmas. So that you can provide your, your kids with an unreasonable amount of presents. So that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, <laughs> this is so beautiful. What happens next? They will thank God. Can you think of a more beautiful result of Christmas than this? You acknowledge the resources God has given you. And you buy your family gifts. Please don't take away from this that you shouldn't buy your family gifts. But I'm asking you to consider, what if you also took the resources and great harvest God has given you, and you figure out a way with your family, include your children, include your spouse, to be generous this year to someone who needs it. So that the end result is that we take those gifts, you give it to someone who needs it, and they will thank God. What a holy thing that might happen this Christmas. What a holy thing. I've been so encouraged, by the way, in our church family, our response to people in need. I've been so encouraged. Um, the different times in the last few, um, I usually just walk back and forth in this Advent wreath. I just want to be careful um, that I don't knock that over. The different opportunities we've had to be generous to people in our church, to people in our community, to people around the world, our church has been so generous. You know what I've also noticed? Y'all are pretty creative on your own. And there are, there are things happening in our church um, where people are collecting funds to gift people their Christmas dinner because they personally know someone who's going through a difficult time. There's people that are gathering um, goodie bags. I saw this from one of our people in our church. Goodie bags where it's a Ziploc gallon bag and it has socks and a $5 bill and gift card to a restaurant or a fast food place and, 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 and energy bars and all of these different things and they keep them in the car and when they find someone that needs one, they say a prayer and then they gift them that goodie bag. Oh man, I'm just asking you to consider what it looks like with your family to spend less and be generous. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. The reason God has blessed you is not for the accumulation of wealth. The reason God has blessed us is so that we can be generous and we take our gifts to those who need them and they will thank God. This is Unwrapping Spending. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, 
we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.